Our scripture today is the first chapter of Philippians, starting at verse 27 and going to the end of the chapter, then picking up chapter 2 and reading verses 1 through 4. I will read that in just a few moments. When you see someone, what is it that you first notice about them? My cousin put this question on Facebook this week, and a lot of people said, oh, I noticed their shoes. Okay, that may be so, but I'm thinking more universally. What do you observe when someone comes into the room? What I'm talking about is actually more evident when we know the person. When I was in high school, I had a psychology class with a teacher who was a long-term friend of the family. His name was Harry Simmons and I loved him. He was a jovial guy and he also was an advisor for a service club that a group of us were part of. One day after school, he and I were stuffing envelopes or something together and we'd been at it for a while when all of a sudden from across the room he said, do you know that you sigh a lot? You sound just like my daughter when she doesn't want to be someplace. What's up? Yeah, he noticed my attitude. There were a zillion things that I could have been doing that day and helping him wasn't really on top of my agenda. Attitudes. It's one of the most recognizable things about us, even when we try to hide it. People notice our clothes, our mannerisms, our words, but it's our attitude that comes through loud and clear. These next two Sundays, we're going to be talking about attitude. We talked last week about how what we do matters. Today we're going to talk about how the attitude with which we do those things is often just as significant. The good we do can be tarnished with negativity. We can put people off with our dismissiveness. We can lose relationships when we refuse to relent. Or we can brighten an entire room with our smile. We can turn around a tense situation with our confidence. Our compassion can be a balm in a difficult situation. In the text that we study today, Paul is veering away from his opening remarks to get to the heart of the matter. There's not a huge problem in the church at Philippi, yet there were some issues he needs to address with them, like their attitudes, because it is affecting how they act and how they treat one another. In this passage, he focuses on the mind, the inward disposition all Christians share, and an essential characteristic of our faith. One anonymous quote I found said this, A bad attitude is like a flat tire. If you don't change it, you're never going anywhere. Truth. Paul is wanting to make sure that the church is going in the direction God has for them, which is the same for the church today. We submit ourselves to Jesus through these words. Philippians, Philippians 1, starting at verse 27. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that 
whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation, and this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you the privilege, not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Since you are having the same struggles that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, Make my joy complete, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Paul begins by telling the church to live their lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does that mean? To live one's life worthy of the gospel. This phrase has been running around in my mind all week. Christ has given his life for me. Is who I am being reflecting that sacrifice? The original meaning here is about citizenship. Literally, it would have read this way in the Greek. Only be conducting yourselves as citizens worthily of the gospel about the Christ. Paul is writing from Rome and was addressing a church who as a colony aspired to be Roman in everything they could be. In this time, a person's duty was intertwined with the city to which they belonged. Paul is telling them that they have a responsibility beyond their context. They must live as citizens in the kingdom of God first, meaning they govern their lives by the standards of the gospel before evoking allegiance to their empire. Reading these words, we see what Paul expects the church to look like. And we have to ask ourselves, are his expectations still what we're supposed to be doing? A lot of time has passed. Our context is so different. The church is global and also any place where two or three believers are gathered together. What is the church? The church is God's people expressing their relationship with Jesus in the world. He had a physical body when he was on earth and now his body is lived 
through those who belong to him so that we might go and offer salvation and minister in his name to everyone we meet. Paul is emphasizing this idea that is key to our sermon today. In the church, we demonstrate the gospel of Christ in our lives, in how we respond to our circumstances and how we treat one another. We respond to the gospel of Christ. We demonstrate how our lives are worthy of the sacrifice that Christ made and how we respond to our circumstances and how it is that we treat one another. Paul gives us four attitudes. He is encouraging the believers to exemplify as they progress in their faith. Attitudes matter. You could argue that all of these things that I'm talking about are actions, yet they begin as attitudes where we decide what our posture will be. So first, Paul expects the church to be courageous. In verses 27 and 28, Paul says he wants to know whether he's with them or not, that they are standing firm in the spirit striving side by side with one mind for the faith, and that they are in no way intimidated by their opponents. Intimidated here means frightened. And a word picture might be a group of apprehensive horses who speak, who spook easily and will start running quickly at the slightest provocation. So often in scripture, we are exhorted to not be afraid. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, we are told that in this world we're going to have trouble, but we need to take heart. God is with us. God is on our side. He is going to fight for us. He is going to strengthen us and help us. Our Savior has overcome everything that caused us worry. When there's opposition, we seek the one who looked at his enemies in the face with great love and died for them. Why do we get so intimidated by those who oppose God? Paul is talking about not being scared of persecution. He is saying when things get challenging, we may be tempted to stay silent or downplay our faith. We wanna blend in and not make waves choosing to let our lives speak. I often hear that. I, I want to let my life speak instead of saying anything with words. Paul is telling us to not be ashamed of the gospel. Being courageous is one way we show how much God is worth to us. Whatever is happening with the Philippians, Paul wants to make sure that they don't falter. What causes you to lose your courage as a Christian? When are times that you can remember or that you can think that you are fearless about your faith? Those are questions that we should examine as uh, people who follow the Lord. For many of us, I imagine that we're intimidated when people oppose God really strongly in our lives. But Paul is saying here how much our attitude matters. 
He teaches that when we stand firm, it, st it serves as evidence that any opponents, even the strongest opponent, ultimately are going to be ruined if they stay on that path. Paul is telling the church that the courage we display will be proof of their destruction and it will be proof of our salvation. This is not our doing, but God's. These are strong words that Paul uses and they're meant to give believers more courage. God is powerful and he is never afraid because he is victorious over rebellion and evil. When there seems to be more bad than good, we must not abandon hope or give up. We ask God to give us a new attitude of relentless trust in Him. Even as we let go of our fear for anything that we're experiencing, while this takes individual decision, we also find more courage together as the body of Christ. Living out our faith in community is what keeps the church going. Current author and pastor Francis Frangipane talks about this when he says this, Beloved, I say, let your fears go, lest they make you faint-hearted. Stop inspiring fear in those around you, and now take your stand in faith. God has been good and he will continue to manifest his goodness. Let us approach these days expecting to see the goodness of the Lord manifest. Let us be strong and have good courage for the Lord will fight for us if we stand in the faith. Amen. Along with courage, Paul says he expects the church to view suffering for their faith as a privilege, as we see in verse 29. Look at what he does here. He reminds them that just as salvation has been graciously given to them, so has suffering. Both are meant to be seen as gifts of God for those who trust in Jesus. So let's hold on a second. Paul is saying that suffering for the faith is a privilege just as much as salvation is. Is that what you think? I've really wrestled with that this week. Whatever is going on in the Philippian church, they are experiencing pushback for their outward faith in Christ. And they have seen Paul suffer and be tortured and be imprisoned. And at some level, they're having that struggle as well. But a privilege? This would have served as a complete attitude check, I would think. We tend to think of persecution as a nuisance, something to be avoided, a heartbreak, a roadblock to our happiness. But Paul says being mistreated for the faith is a special advantage, which is only given to those who are followers of Christ. Consider, if our mindset were that suffering for Christ is essential to our faith as much as our salvation, wouldn't we be more bold about who we are and making God known? Even if you have never thought of this attitude or you're not quite sure you're ready to adopt it, 
you can see what Paul's getting at. Jesus took our sins upon his body in the worst way imaginable. And when we belong to him, we should consider it an honor to be mistreated for the gospel. Think about the times that we have said to someone, it's my honor to help you. It's my honor to serve you. Sometimes we've gone out of our way to help someone or we've sacrificed something to help bring meaning to another person, to our nation, to an organization. And Paul is saying, since you have been freed from your sins, since you have been given such a huge gift, then live as though it is an honor to have people torment you for that gift. And then we hear Jesus's words at the end of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you, he says, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, Jesus says, and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. We considered last week about how we in America don't suffer greatly in this uh, for our faith. And yet, the church is in decline. Maybe there needs to be a change in our attitude that suffering for Jesus is an honor instead of being something to avoid. And maybe then we would all spread his word more. Next, Paul says, it is expected that there is unity in the church. Being one as Christians is central to walking with God. We all belong to his body. Although we play different parts, we are all needed. Even though the church has so much variation, all those who belong to Christ, who proclaim him, who trust him as their Lord and Savior are part of his family. Being one is a gift from God, as we see in Ephesians 2, another writing from Paul, and as such, we know that God's care, uh, core value is to maintain this unity among those who belong to him. It's not something that automatically happens. It's a process that we all grow into. It is uniquely different from any other kind of earthly closeness because it's based on the truth of the triune God, the crucified Lord and the resurrection. Make no mistake, when we become a Christian, we're part of the family, we're part of the body, but sometimes it takes us a while. That's the process to understand and to know exactly what that means and looks like. There is danger of disunity threatening the church at Philippi, but isn't this always true? Wherever there are humans, there's conflict. Humans are strong and we have a deep desire sometimes to exert our will um, over others. And when we focus on those aspects of life that aren't eternal, allowing them to break our bond in Christ, then there's a problem. And Paul is trying to tell them that their attitude toward one another is vital to living a life worthy of the gospel. Now, we know, but need to be told again and remember, unity is not having the same opinions politically. It's not loving the same kind of worship music. 
It's not having all of the same focus in outreach to our community. It's not comparing ourselves to other congregations. Unity of Christ, in Christ is having common love for God and one another. It's a commitment to learn together from his word. It's deciding to band together in a neighborhood to bring the light, the light of the world to the darkness that exists there. It is bringing our best thoughts as a group, seeking the Holy Spirit who binds us together, knowing none of us have the answer, but together, together with his spirit empowering us, we can make good decisions. We can move the kingdom, reveal it forward. Paul is saying that unity is essential for dealing with a hostile world. How good is it to come together after a long week and be able to pray for one another? How vital it is when we use our gifts in community, encouraging the body. We're living out God's love to our neighbors. How good it is to be able to have those uh, that we trust, that we can call on to help us because we share the same Lord knowing that we're not alone, whether we're planting trees in Madagascar or serving in an underground church or helping provide meals at a shelter, being one with other Christians is a supernatural gift that we have to continue to cultivate with God's help. Unity with one another begins with our attitude. This was Jesus's prayer in John 17. I pray that they would all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. This leads us naturally into our last thought. Paul expects the church to have an attitude of humility as we regard others as better than ourselves. Humility was not a virtue that was valued by the Greek mindset in the first century, as it was thought that only slaves needed to be that way. So this is another aspect in which the Philippians would need to adjust their thinking. Humility might be defined as the proper examination of oneself as made in the image of God coupled with a dependence on him. Look at all of the ways that Paul highlights what it means. Don't do anything from selfish ambition, which means don't advance yourself without any thought for others. Do nothing, he says, from conceit, which means don't assert your will over God's will all of us have to remember that how we treat one another will either build up the church or tear it down. When our unchecked attitudes uh, of, condescend of being condescending or prideful, unkind or constantly exasperated, we will do great damage to one another and to the church. The church is meant to be people who live humbly with one another not in a hallmark greeting kind of way, but in a messy daily choice to love as Christ has loved us 
no matter what. In this last section, Paul is pleading to them out of their long-standing uh, relationship with him. They have a trust that they have built up for years, and his words are an emotional appeal. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, if you have any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete, he says, by living in unity and humility together. Have you ever had someone convince you to do something only because you trusted them? Come on, I need you to do this thing. If you don't do anything else, do this one thing for me. Of course you have. And you have probably begged somebody in the same way. Paul is putting himself out there so the church knows how serious he is about this. Church, we have to be humble. Tim Keller, who is a pastor in New York and a prolific writer, says this, The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Great quote. In response to my teacher, Mr. Harry Simmons, I realized my attitude was showing more than I thought. I made a commitment to be there that day and I could choose how I felt about it and how it was that I was going to be with him. So to make it better, make the time go, I asked him all kinds of questions about his life that I didn't know before and we had a memorable time. It seems that a life worthy of the gospel is one of vulnerability and dependence. We often don't show who we really are to others, but this is what Paul is asking us to do. And some of that means a definite change in our attitudes. He is telling us to be courageous when we would rather not act, reminding us that suffering is a privilege when that's not really how we want to think about it, calling us to true unity even with all of our differences, and telling us that humility is not an option, that we must be humble, and that humility must be grounded in a love that we cannot fake. As we take a few minutes in prayer, I invite you to listen 
to how the Holy Spirit is instructing you through this scripture, both personally and as someone who belongs to the larger body of Christ. Let us pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.